0: You're listening to episode five of Speaking with Deacon, answering God's call. Speaking with Deacon is a production of the Perusia Podcast Network, in partnership with Voice of Charity Australia and EWTN Asia Pacific. Join us as we discuss strategies that will empower us to announce the gospel of the Lord daily through our words and deeds. This is Speaking with Deacon. hello and thanks for joining us again on speaking with deacon my name is mark griffin your host and joining me as always is deacon harold burke-sivers deacon how are you
1: i'm doing well mark it's great to be with you as always
0: it's great to have you back and and it's great that you're able to fit this in obviously with the world opening up and and catching up and making up for lost time you're, you're pretty busy traveling everywhere at the moment aren't you
1: yes i'm traveling literally every week and uh sometimes I'm even even weeks away from home you know it, two weeks maybe even a little bit longer before I can come home and I'm usually home only a day or a day and a half and then back out again um and it, it, it's it's the result of the rescheduling events from 2020 and early 2021 uh due to COVID and so uh it's like I, mean, I gotta I got say it's been good to be back out again you know uh I just wish it was a little bit slower pace, but I mean it'll 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 die down. It's just for this this uh, the next few months, and then uh, um, in fact, my schedule is not going to be as busy in the fall because the uh, when people were canceling, there were also no new engagements being booked, and so it, it kind of left this kind of a gap uh, in right. my schedule moving forward. Because usually I'm booked two years in advance, but that's not the case now. So, but and I'm going to be doing some things um, to kind of back off uh my my um uh my parish mission schedule. Mm-hmm. I want to focus on conferences and um like shorter length events so I can spend more sure. more time at home and focus more on pilgrimages and and traveling to uh overseas to Australia and New Zealand. Hopefully uh, can't soon. wait to have you back. Yeah. Yeah <laughs> yeah I'm really looking for that. I got so I got several new talks um, that I've developed that I've been, uh, I've been, I've been, um, giving them over the past couple of months and that they've been going very, very well, very well received. So I'm excited to share those, uh, with the people down under.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. We, we look forward to having you back and, and, and hearing some of that, that new, uh, material, um, no doubt it's going to be as informative as everything you've presented before. So yeah, looking forward to that opportunity when it comes again. And, and thank you for making time in the busy schedule to, to sit down with us today and and, uh, and go through this topic. And, and the topic today, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, discernment and, and finding our vocation and, and answering God's call. Now, in our previous episode, uh, we talked a lot about praying and praying with confidence. And I suppose this then flows on from that is once we're in that conversation with God, What are we going to do with it? And how do we find God's will in our life? So for today's uh, discussion, we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to use your own vocational testimony as a bit of a roadmap, as a bit of a case study, if you like, uh, to how we can discern God's will in our life and find our vocation and then what to do next. So maybe to start with Deacon, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? As a child, was was your faith a big part of your life, and, and what sort of family life and, and 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 community life did you have that con- contributed to your faith life, and and where did you sit at that stage in your life?
1: Yeah, so I was born in Barbados, uh, in the West Indies, in the Caribbean. It's in a Barbados is in a chain of islands called the Lesser Antilles. So, um, it's the island that's the largest and the furthest east in that chain. And it's not too far off the coast of Venezuela and also very close to Trinidad and Tobago. And uh, that's we're first generation to come to the United States. My father was a very popular singer and nightclub owner. And my mom w- was a cardiac care nurse. Uh, right. So, um, and my mom uh, was the first Catholic in our family. So she was a Methodist and uh, she became Catholic when she was a teenager. And then my father was not a person of faith at all. Uh, he didn't come to faith till much, much later uh, in his life. And so, um, yeah, so we, I was baptized three weeks after I was born. So really, I'm the first baptized Catholic in our family, because, of course, my mother didn't have to be baptized when she came into the church, uh, just uh, Eucharist and, and, uh, and uh, Confirmation. Uh, so yes, yeah, so my mom, when we immigrated to the United States. My mom was very strong Catholic. So um, we went to mass, you know, every week. We went, she said she sacrificed, worked lots of overtime, many, many hours to send us to Catholic school. And uh, I remember even as, as young as nine years old, 10 years old, uh, really enjoying going to church. Um, and I remember I used to be focused on what was going on at the altar to the point where my mom uh would would seat me uh in the pew next to the aisle and then she would stand next to me and then my siblings my my two brothers and my sister would be on the other side of my mom because they were typical kids like throwing cheerios and you know bumping each other during mass but i i i remember this i remember looking at the altar and seeing everything going on up there and saying to myself "There." Wow, there's something really cool going on up there. I don't really understand exactly what it is, but I like it, you know. And, uh, yeah. and and when I got to serve mass, oh my goodness, I thought I was in heaven. I I mean, even to this day, Mark, I, I I you know, I'm in my 50s and I've been ordained as a deacon for 19 years, and I still, when I when I'm standing in the back of the church ready to process to the front, I still get that childlike kind of excitement. You know, of, of being able to to serve at the altar, just like I did when I was nine and
0: ten. You said it was it was like being in heaven. In one way, it kind of is, though. In reality, yeah, as well, yeah. there, there is that that spiritual reality about it. So it's not that's not a bad description of of, of how it how it would feel. Um, you, you mentioned that your mother was the the faith influence at this point, and your dad wasn't a man of faith. A lot of surveys, I've, I've, I've seen results, and I don't have any to draw on now, but just picking up on what you said, you've seen results from surveys that suggest that the father is the one who the children will follow and, and the mother is fighting against that, which is why it's so important for, for Christian fathers to be strong and, and men of faith to lead their children. Because of the dynamic that you had with your mother as the leader, uh, of the faith leader, if you like, in the family, did you ever have a pull in the direction of, Oh, this faith this is this is old-fashioned this isn't for me in in the direction of your father who wasn't a man of faith did you ever have that pull or feel that that conflict there
1: uh no uh, again which is kind of unusual you know yeah. you don't have many kids that that at that age um saying wow I really like going to church or you know I, I really want to be on the altar again this week you know um and and I you know I remember it's just this um You know, one of the things that I think parents need to be aware of, um, because every child is different, right? I I have four kids. You have seven with another one on the way. And so um, every child is different. And I think what parents have to do is recognize the personality of the child Mm -hmm. and recognize that, you know, and really pay attention to if that child, um, what, what their talents, what their personality, you know, is geared toward. You know, to, to, in order to help them properly discern, and when it comes to the faith piece, you're right. The, the uh, you know when the kids are little, it's all about mommy, right? <laughs> you know, when the kids are little, they're clinging to mommy because mommy's the one that's that's feeding them and and you know and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and dad's important too, of course, but dad's role really kicks in when the kids are older, um, when when they're trying now to navigate friendships, when they're trying to understand their relationship with God, when they're trying to own their relationship with God. It's not just when my parents are telling me I have to go to church, my parents telling me I have to believe this stuff. It, they get to an age where they begin to own it. And and, and, at, and it's the same age where they begin that, natu- that natural breaking away from the parents and that kind of independence, which is necessary for, for adulthood, but that natural progression. And so parents they really need to pay attention to that. Uh, and that's where the father's role really kicks in. And you're right, Mark. In my first book, "Behold the Man," uh, I talk about that study where it shows that if uh, women just bring the children to church, like only thirty percent or less of them stay stay in the Catholic faith. But if the fathers are involved, uh, you know, bringing them to church and, and and praying with them, being part of their life, you know, seventy percent will stay in the the church so so the fathers were why because he's the priest of the family right and the main job of a priest is to offer sacrifice now my situation and like many people's situation uh you know my father my parents were divorced uh my father was was not a man of faith he was not an important um faith person in my life at all never saw my father in church growing up ever you know so um So, what my mother did, she understood she could be the best mother that she could be, but she could not be a father figure to us. Uh And so she made sure we had other male role models, not to take the place of my father, but to be a witness and a sign of what authentic manhood looked like to help me navigate those those sometimes turbulent and difficult uh, teenage years. So, for me, it was my scoutmaster, who was actually a Jewish doctor. Uh, who came from the suburbs into the city to be with us uh, the Boy Scouts uh, on Monday nights and uh, he was very influential very informative and, and in fact I kept the friendship with him even through college you know uh, and when, when he was no longer in scouting I I, I kept in regular touch with him um, my my wrestling coach uh, I was an athlete in high school a standout athlete actually and and my wrestling coach was very very um, uh, influential, uh, very much a father figure. Uh, some of my teachers, the monks at, at the monastery were all very, very influential, all men, uh, influential in, you know, in, 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 a, in a lot of different ways, predominantly, um, believing in me during those times when I didn't even believe in myself, you know, they, they played a crucial role. In fact, I in in the, um, acknowledgements in my first book, I actually named them. You know to to thank them personally for everything that they that they did for me
0: that's great did you ever feel the the desire to share with your father the faith that you had and that your mother had and that she was bringing your family up in or was he just very distant from it and just closed off to it and and how did that dynamic go did you ever wish he was there with you
1: um no No, he was very distant, like as you as you say, Mark. Very closed off, not interested, Mm -hmm. really at all, in anything with the faith. You know, when when I started expressing an interest in the priesthood, he treated it like a phase. You know, because he knew my mom was very religious, Mm -hmm. right? And so, obviously, that you know, he expected some of that to rub off on on us kids. And when I expressed interest in the priesthood, he goes, yeah, you know, he didn't really take it seriously. Even when uh, I was in high school and I uh, began the the come and see program with the Benedictines Mm -hmm. who ran my high school. By the time I was a senior, Mark, I was living uh, two weeks in the monastery every other month. So I was spending a lot of time in the monastery, a lot of time living and praying with the monks as a high school student. Sure. You know, and I felt a very strong attraction to monastic life to the point where I even majored. uh, I mean, we I mean, we I had talks with the abbot about, you know, what am I going to study in college at uni? So when I you know, if I did join a monastery, how could they use my talents and my skills? And so that's one of the reasons why I was an economics and business major with it. And the business emphasis was on accounting because they were thinking I would be the business manager in the monastery. Right. <laughs> I also took Latin at uni because going to be a monk you have to chant, you have to use Latin, so yeah. I figured I need Latin. So all of that influenced um, you know the decisions I made uh, after high school.
0: Did you we'll touch on a bit on the time in the monastery then. Did you ever at that point feel that you were there as a called to the priesthood or were you there just to be a religious in the community or what did you feel at that point in time you were being led to and and what were the things that were sort of going back and forth in your mind as to the indicators because obviously we're we're theming this around vocation and, and journey of discernment your time in the monastery obviously you didn't stay there so while you were there what were the, the things going on in your mind and what was your focus
1: yeah so a couple of things um when I was in university, I never lost the desire. I mean, I dated, you know, um, in, in in college, never really considered marriage. Um, so even though I was dating, I knew I, I would go to the monastery. It was more like, um, you know, th- there weren't really any serious relationships or anything like that. You know, it's just, you know, going to a dance and things like that. Um, and after uni, I I worked for a year because I wanted to have that experience of, owning a car and having a job and paying bills and paying rent and an apartment, you know, and all those things that you do. So I, I did that for a year while I, and I had a spiritual director who I was still, you know, speaking with um, at, at the university. And then after that year, I joined monastic life and um, I was very happy. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed the silence um, that's what attracted me. It was, you know, uh, the silence, the prayer, the rhythm of the day, you know, um, not have to worry about what to wear. Cause right now, Mark, you know, I, I just got back from a trip. I was gone for a week and a half and you know, I, what suit, what tie, what shirt, what shoes. I mean, it's just in a monster, you get up, throw a habit on done. Yes. <laughs> you don't have to think about that. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and so that, that fit me. I mean, I felt very comfortable there. Um, and as far as the priesthood, I still believed I had a call to the priesthood, which you can do, of course, um, as a monk, you could be a monk and a priest, but the, the priest was basically the abbot's decision. The okay. abbot is the one who decides whether you, you go on to the priesthood. But of course, I was slated to go on uh, to, to the priesthood there at the Abbey. Um, and so I, you know, it was one of those things where I, I did pray and did discern as a teenager and then as a young, as a young adult and everything in my body, in my soul, um, told me that this was what God wanted me to do, uh, to, to be a monk. And, uh, that caused a tremendous rift with my dad, um, to the point where I, I, we, when I made the decision to join a monastery and I went to talk to him about it, um, we got into a, um, a pretty heated argument. And I basically considered him dead to me at that point. And we, we didn't speak for another 18 years uh, after that. Yeah. So So
0: this, this vocation business is, is a serious business. This can, this can really change your life. Can't it?
1: Well, you know what? It's the same thing happens, Mark. You know, I compare it to those who are not Catholic, who make the decision to come into the church and it may cost them a relationship with their parents. It may cost them good, very good friends. You know, and if they're a pastor in a Protestant parish, it may cost them, a, it's going to cost them their job and their yes. livelihood, you know? And what does Jesus say though? You know, the truth is what divides, right? He says, you know, the truth is like a two-edged sword. And that's why Jesus talks. you, think I came to bring peace? I came to bring the sword. And this is what mother against daughter, father against son, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, because he's talking, it's the truth that divides, yeah. you know? And, and so, but you have to follow the truth wherever the truth leads, And and so I was willing to sacrifice that relationship with my dad, you know, being an adult now. And he was, they were already divorced. He was already kind of out of my life anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was, I mean, I I didn't like the fact that that was the case, but you know, I knew I had to follow Jesus. Um, And my mom was very supportive. My friends, you know, when I was in high school, they made fun of me because they knew I was living in the monastery, but I don't care. You know, I I don't, you know, it was an all boys school. You know how guys rib each other. Right. You know, so, I could care less but when i did join they were very supportive including my best friend at the time who ended up being the best man in my wedding but but he didn't understand but he was very supportive and and that that meant a lot to me
0: what do you think is the the role of our our family and friends in our life and and when when we're discerning our vocation when we're discerning our path and sometimes as as we're finding out you really discover who your friends are and, and who your supportive family are can you speak a bit to the power of the role that your support network plays when you're on this journey and, and, and how important it is if you know someone who might be discerning for the priesthood or religious life, or, or even a discernment for marriage, how important it is to be supportive, but not patronizing to what they're going through. Don't just say, oh, of course you should be, or yes, of course I can see you being a priest. So not necessarily patronizing towards them, but very supportive of their, the, the search that they're on.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I remember speaking at a, mod- at a, a seminary in Florida and um, I gave the talk to the um, to the seminarians and I asked at the end, I said, hey, I'm just curious. I said, how many of you, um, you know, your, your parents were ac- excited, and enthusiastic about you um, becoming a priest and not many raised their hands. I said, what? I said, well, why weren't your parents supportive? You know, and they said, you know, actually, they were the ones who were some of the biggest detractors hmm. from me coming to the seminary were my parents. And I said, wait a minute, it should be just the opposite. You know, they should be ones that should be encouraging you, uh, and, you know, and doing everything to help foster and nurture if, if they believe God has, you know, has a vocation for you to, as a priest. And they were saying, well, you know, and a number of them were saying, well, my parents want grandkids, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and just a little side note, you know if they would have had more kids, then this wouldn't be an issue, right? Mm-hmm. You yep. know, but we Catholics have bought into this contraceptive mentality of the culture. We try to limit our family size. Um, and, and this is what happens. We don't have enough kids. And all you're thinking about is, you, you know, you're, you you know, the generation and the continuation of your family line, you know, the solution to that have more kids, <laughs> but anyway, that's a side note. Um, but yes, <laughs> but the, the support network, I think, is, is very important. Um, so for me, my support network, number one, is my mom and my siblings. Again, when I was in high school, they made fun of me. But when they saw, you know, uh, my, my path and my journey and how serious I was about this vocation, they were very, very supportive. My, my close friend, my closest friends, the ones who really know me, who, who aren't in, um, interested in getting something from me or just, you know... Um, leveraging a friendship for their own purposes and their own needs, but really care about me as a person and are, and are really, really good friends. Uh, they were all very supportive. And so that kind of, for me, outweighed uh, my father's uh, extreme disappointment sure. and anger, quite frankly, with, with my decision. That, of course, as a person, he's not a person of faith. He couldn't understand, you know, as he said, why would I want to live with a bunch of men? You know, so it it, it didn't make sense to him, but, but that support network, even if they don't understand what God may be calling you to, um, but if they're there to support you, um, and, and and that's been important to me as I continue to discern my left monastic life and which we're going to talk about, but that network actually played even more, uh, a more important role. Uh, later on in my in my discernment process sure.
0: absolutely before we jump away from your your period in in the monastery you mentioned before about prayer and 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 knowing that this is this is what God wants for me this this is this is my calling and can you explain a little bit about what that prayer was like how do you pray for discernment that this is the path and and then how do you know it when you see it and then even when it wasn't, what you thought it was going to be, the role that it plays in the journey. Obviously, you're meant to be there for a reason. So what does the prayer look like? How do you pray? And then what are the signs you're looking for to know that you're on the right track as you go through this phase?
1: Yeah, so for me, um, uh, when it, it started when I was uh, 9 or 10, and it was a pull or a tug, sure. you know, an attraction you know, to, to the liturgy first. Uh, and then that 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 desire when I got to the monastery and I saw how the monks lived, it deepened. So it went from being a curiosity. It went from being something I that I, I could see myself doing. It went to I now I could see myself living that way. You see, so it's so it, it started to evolve. And then I was very attracted to the, the silence, to the rhythm of, of monastic life. I wasn't attracted to getting up early in the morning. Um, but uh, but I was attracted to the prayer life, you know, and, and, and just to focus on the Benedictine balance of, of aura at labor, pray, prayer and work, that wonderful balance there. Um, uh, it was just it, I just felt like this is where God needed me to be. And even when I was at uni and I dated, you know, I went to dances and I and I dated and things like that. But that desire never left. You know, it, it never went away. And I was still active in, I never stopped going to church. I, you know, I, I, the uni that I went to was a Catholic university. So they have mass in the dorms, in the in the, in, in the dormitories every week. And I went and I, in fact, I played guitar uh, at mass um, back then, sang in the gospel choir. And so I was very, still very much involved uh, in my faith. And so that year that I took, um, Uh, you know, uh, to just kind of live because I didn't want to want to go in. I wasn't afraid of joining the monastery after I finished uni, but it was more, I didn't want to go in with any regrets. I didn't want to go in thinking, wow, I don't know what it's like to pay bills. You know, so I just wanted to get that kind of young adult experience. Yeah. And, and even then I still had a, a, had a, uh, uh, a spiritual director uh, who was a priest a local priest at the uni, I was still talking and and working things through, and still, of course, in touch with the monks. And uh, and and when I joined, I I really felt at home. You know, I really felt this is where God needs me to be, and it was Mark. It was where God needed me to be then, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Because after I left, and I'm and I'm saying to myself, why? I mean, I, I remember being nine and ten years old, feeling this attraction. First priest said, so "Dem and asked like, now 'Now I'm a monk. Why, leave? Why? Why would God put me there and then just to have me leave? But, but then I realized again with time comes um, retrospect, right? You're able to look back, and, and now it makes complete sense why I needed to be there in a monastery at that time. Obviously, yeah, the monks obviously. were disappointed when I left, and I left because uh, I didn't. It wasn't that I feel I wasn't called. My mother got sick and almost died." And when my dad left, I helped my mom take care of the family. So, the abbot gave me several months out of the monastery to uh, take care of my sister, who was still in high school, and to pay bills and, and kind of manage the house and, and uh, help nurse my mom back to health before she you know, to, so until she was able to get back on her feet again. And it was during that time out of the monastery that I attended a wedding, and then met the woman who ended up being my wife. So. Yeah. Uh, and actually, after I met her, I went back to the monastery, you know, because um, I, I, I I never intended to leave, you know, and this was a little nice interaction with this young, beautiful young lady. But I'm going back and I went back to the monastery, but they wouldn't allow me to come back because my mom was not fully convalesced. The, the, her um, uh, her illness uh, lingered longer than, than anticipated. Uh, in fact, it, it was the start of a 20 year decline in her health. That would eventually take her life, you know. Um, and, um, uh, but during that early stage, um, you know, when the abbot said, stay out longer, because you can't be halfway in the monastery and halfway at home. And so uh, while I'm going to be out longer, I might as well go on a, you know, just go, because he kept, you know, she kept calling me to go on a date. So I went. And then I went again. Then I went again. <laughs> and, so, and so and so I said I better not go back to the monastery to figure out what this, what's going on. what, what is this yeah, all about? This is know? all
0: very different. All of a sudden, this is yeah. all
1: very different. You know, and um, and then as the relationship got s- progressed and got more serious, you know, um, I almost went back to the monastery again, Mark, yep. because I never env- well, I first of all I never envisioned getting married, but mostly because I was
0: scared. I was going to say what part of that was fear and just thinking, well, oh, that's not what I planned. So let's run from that. Yeah.
1: It was fear because, you know, I did not want to end up like my parents. Okay. Well. I was afraid. I did not want to end up like my parents because I don't, I mean, I knew what was going on with my dad and I knew that I wasn't going to be like him, mm-hmm. but still there's that when you're a kid and you're going through, the parents go through divorce, there's that thing there that you might catch it, you know? Sure. Um, so I was afraid. I thought, oh, well, what's the safe thing to do when you're scared? You go back to what you know. So I, I, I was thinking maybe I should go back to the monastery. So I actually took time in another monastery to discern whether I should go back and be a monk again, or whether I should continue this relationship and get married. And it was there in this in this other monastery again. I didn't I didn't go there to join. I went there to discern. That's when I really spent a ton of time in adoration, um, a lot of time writing. You know, I was I was kept a little like log, a little journal which I think I still have, I might, I might, I might turn that into a book or something later on. I have to to think about that. Just kind of what my thoughts were during that time, you know, kind of what it was, what I was feeling, you know? Um, And I thought I would go back to the monastery, but it became clear after several months that no, you know, um, although there, there, there were things I was going to miss about monastic life. And quite frankly, there are still things I still miss about monastic life that that's not where God needed me. He, he needed me there at that time. Yes. But now he, that that was just kind of a a phase one, if you will. Now he needed me to, to enter into this, into this marriage. And so I went to the monastery thinking I was going to go back to the monastery back to the Newark in New Jersey. And, but I, I left. Um, confident that i'm supposed to be married and so yeah that's what I, we got married and she finished graduate school and we and we moved to oregon and then that started phase three the next, so there was the the discernment next for the monastery the discernment for marriage and now the third discernment for the diaconate and, and that's I, and three I, of four there's four big ones okay. uh and, and the diaconate was number three
0: yeah before we get into this this third phase i think what you've described so far is a good demonstration of what St. Paul I think tells us to test everything. And that is that you had these pools in your life. And even though you felt so convicted that that was the one for you, it didn't stop you from experiencing other things before committing to that one. You were committed to it, but you did other things and you tested it. And it worked itself out because of your willingness to be open to testing and to be open to weighing up your options and obviously before being committed to them there's that you can't once you've made your commitment you can't backtrack on that but but you are open to weighing up your options and it reminds me of an experience i had myself and that was when i i was in a job and i was finding i was getting really bitter with the politics of the job and just the, the stress of that and i was coming home at night and just unloading on the family very unfairly but that's just where i was at and I decided with my wife that this isn't where I need to be. This is, it's better to be unemployed than it is to be coming home bitter and doing this. And so with child number three at the time on the way, I left that job and I was actually unemployed for seven months, which is stressful when you've got a baby on the way and, and you've already got two there with you because they are also very young. And at that point, I sought out a Dominican sister who was down here. Um, and I'll never forget the advice she gave me because I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what path I'm on. And she said, you can be rest assured you're on a path. Now look back in your life and see the different landmarks throughout your life and see what part God played in that. And that just, it just like it's turning on a light. I, I did that and I could say, oh yeah, he led me there. He led me through that. He led me there. He met. He, he led me to meet my wife. He led us down this path. So why would I doubt now that that he's he's leading us? He's he's obviously leading us. So just be open. Keep doing what I can do to find the next stage, but live the stage that I'm at now. And that to me was just the most powerful advice because I was at a really bad place, and it just it changed everything in an instant. That don't forget this is a journey. I'm not there yet. I'm still on the journey to heaven and I'm not there yet. So I found that really useful.
1: Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, uh, what what I realized now is when I look back, I say, well, uh, that time in the monastery was absolutely critical because now as a professional speaker and author uh, traveling literally all around the world, i draw from that monastic experience all the time yes you know i I draw from like for example i love praying the office the liturgy of the hours which which i have to do as a deacon but god knew i was going to be deacon way before i even knew what a deacon was yes you know so he gave me that desire for praying the liturgy of the hours and that desire for silence because, you know, Mark, you know, uh, you, you've seen you know, the kind of reaction people have to what I'm doing. And, you know, you can you can get an ego from something like that. Or you, you know, when people want autographs and pictures with you all the time. And, and, and I am very uncomfortable with that. That's probably the thing I enjoy least about what I do is that part of it. Yeah. And so I crave silence. I crave I, no matter what parish I go to, I always go to the Adoration Chapel. I always spend time and all of that was fostered in monastic life, but love for, for prayer and, and the, and the joy of the faith. And, and, and that's a wellspring um, of, of intimacy with God that was fostered in monastic life that I, that I just pulled from. And I just, you know, and I just reap the, the, the wonderful um, uh, harvest that God planted in my heart when I was 10 years old, yeah. you know, so I'm reaping, you know, uh, it's like that Psalm, you know, uh, you go out, you go out full of tears, carrying seed for the sowing. You come back, you come back, uh, with a song carrying the sheaves, you know, reaping the rewards of what God planted in your heart. And, uh, and there's people along the way who, um, who who kind of give that water, you know, (laughs) and kind of water that along those seeds along the way. And so that God helps that seed to grow. But, but those people like the sister that Talk that you spoke with and, and other people in my life uh, played that important role. Even Paul talks about this, right? He yep. says, I planted, Apollo's watered, but God gave the yield, you know, and, and that that's basically the life of discernment. The, the hardest part is the trust piece when you're going, because it's like a book, right? God is the author. He wrote the whole book. He knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. You only live one page at a time. You know what came before, but you don't know what's coming next and that's the part of the discernment uh and and uh it's the it's the hardest part i think is the trusting and you're in that moment you're not sure you think you're doing what god wants you to do you're you're responding faithfully to what you truly believe that god is calling you to do and i think god will honor that even if it's not what he wants he's going to use that time uh to, a, a, as a as a lesson that you needed then for something he has for you planned later.
0: I actually love that analogy of the book because if you look at it like pages in a book, your past experiences in your life aren't a page that, all right, you've read that one, never to be seen again. That page is what helps you to make sense of what's to come. Because if you just start at page 180, not reading the 179 pages before page 180 doesn't make sense. So everything in every page before leads up to this point and will lead beyond this point into the future. So yeah, it, it's it's sure it's a page in history, but it's a page that has led up to present and will also help you to, to discern and to, to navigate future. So yeah, I like, I like that analogy of the book. Let, let's yeah. move on then to, to now. Okay, so now you've, you've left the monastery, you've now met the woman of your dreams, you're married. Where did this diaconate, fit into this picture when did you start feeling the call to something more and, and marriage is your vocation so is is the diaconate a different vocation an additional vocation like how does how does that um dynamic play out when you've now discerned that marriage is your vocation and we tend to be given that that label and and that's it i'm there how does the diaconate fit into that and where did that start for you
1: so um we live in the state of oregon which is on the West coast of the United States. And I grew up in New Jersey, which is the complete opposite East. It'd be like, you know, like I grew up in Sydney, but now I live in Perth, (laughs) that that kind of thing, you know, one end of the country to the other. And um, so that's where my wife is from. And so when we got married, you know, we, we got to the parish and I still, even after getting married, I still felt that pull, that attraction. Obviously now it wasn't toward priesthood, and monastic, but there was still something there. So I figured, okay, well, God wants me to be involved in the parish. So I was on parish council. I was on the finance council. I was the uh, uh, accountant for our St. Vincent DePaul conference um, that helped give uh, food assistance, clothing, and utility assistance, electricity, gas, water for people who were struggling to pay their bills. Um, I was uh, lecturing, I was uh, serving, and then teaching altar servers. I mean, I just got involved heavily in the life of the parish, um, and then during the Easter vigil, our, our first Easter vigil um, in, 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 in Oregon, in the new state that we're living in now, um, during Mass, some uh, something strange happened, and it has never happened to me before, and it's never happened to me since, but During the Gloria, so during the Easter vigil, you know, you got your holding your candles, all the readings, and then the Gloria, right, after, before they, uh, before the epistle reading, the Gloria, I mean, again, the Gloria comes. And so the lights came on, the bells are ringing, and I heard an audible voice say, Deacon. Now, I thought Deacon was the name of someone in the parish, um, so I, I turned around and there was nobody behind us, and I looked at my wife as she was singing. I'm like, she didn't hear that, I, and so I'm I'm a little confused now because I don't know where the voice came from, but I I clearly heard deacon, and so I went and so I, I kept thinking about it during the rest of the Easter vigil. I went to Father Nicholas after mass. I said, Father, who's deacon? I didn't say, who is a deacon? I said, who's deacon? Thinking it was a name or somebody. He goes, and he looked at me. Oh, you'd be a great deacon. And I said, well, wait, wait, wait. wait. What are you talking about right now? Because the only the deacons that I knew were the men in the monastery who were going to become priests.
0: Yeah, I never, trans- I never knew a permanent
1: deacon. deacon. Yeah, yeah. Trans- I never knew a permanent deacon. I didn't even know what they were. So Father Nicholas is from Tanzania. He has a, uh, he, at that time, he had a very heavy accent. He kept saying permanent deacon. But I couldn't discern, per, I, I couldn't discern he was saying permanent deacon because I'd never heard that term. And so he, he said, look, he wait here. So he went in the, in the, in the uh, sacristy and he got a copy. He had a copy of the Second Vatican Council documents. And he turned to Lumen Gentium, and I think it was paragraph 29. And he said, read this. At, at the lower end of the hierarchy is the deacon. And it described the the role and ministry of the diaconate, and I just went, "Oh my goodness, that's what I'm supposed to do." It was it hit, just like that. I mean, I that read feeling. that, and I was like, "Oh wow, that." I mean, it felt, and the feeling I had was like calm, like peace, like. Like you, the uh, w- like if you're out at the beach and the wave hits you and the wave just carries you out, and you let you let yourself be carried out by the wave. That's what it felt like. I felt like this is it. This is what God wants me to do, and I and I got so excited, and you know, and I like this is great, and I was thirty years old, <laughs> so you know, and uh, so I called the um, uh, the the diocese was closed on Easter Monday, I called Easter Tuesday. Said, hello, Archdiocese of Portland. I said, yes, I'm supposed to be a deacon. They said, okay, uh, what's your name? <laughs> I was so excited. And so I, I ended up applying and I was accepted into the program, but there was no class that year. So I had to wait until the next year for the next class of um, men to dis- the discernment to start. And so it was a five year process. Um, in our in our diocese, we have to get master's degrees in theology, which I did at the University of Dallas. And at that time, Janet Smith, uh, Marcelino D'Ambrosio, um, Father Mitch Pacwa, mm-hmm. uh, Ed Peters for Canon Law. They were all teaching there at that time. So we had these rock star theologians did, teaching us. And I was like, Man, this is great. I mean, I was loving the whole experience. Um you know, and then I, uh, I was ordained uh, November 23rd, 2002. So, and that was the third phase. So now I'm thinking I'm done. I'm done because I discern, you know, God said, they want me be a monk. Okay. So now I'm married. I know God wanted me to do that. And then I still had this thing up oh, the acunate. Okay. God led me there. Fine. Now I'm married. Now I'm a deacon. Yay. And I'm, a, and I'm working in law enforcement, right? So I'm working in, in the United States we have um, police departments on our unis. Because, um, you know, unlike Australia, where most of the uni students live at home and commute, it's just the opposite. The vast majority live on campus, live away from home in in that campus environment. And so many of the schools have their own, you know, uh, health center for medical issues. They have their own vocational, you know, vocations. they I mean, I have all kinds of different things. And, and I ran the police services on the campus. And so I, I was doing that and, and serving as a deacon in the parish. And I thought, this is it. I'm doing what God wants me to do. You know, just lock it down and just do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> Not knowing that that was part three of four.
0: Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's, a, big of, there's a big leap of faith still to come.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. All right. So just before we move on to this, this, this next stage, phase four, the diaconate itself, was there any concern on the part of your wife as to taking on something like that? Cause I, I think you had children at the time, didn't you?
1: Yeah. When, when, when I started the program, we had no children. Okay. Um, and then during the program, during the five years, we had two children and um actually, uh, we had the, tw- she was pregnant with the twins. We had the two children yes. and pregnant with the twins right near ordination. Okay. And so in fact, the twins were born two weeks after I was ordained. Wow. So, nice. um, so we had very, very young children. So during the discernment process, one of the things that, that the, di- the archdiocese did, which my wife very, very much appreciated was they, uh, at one point they brought in the wives of the current deacons. guys who are already ordained and so they 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 went off separately to their own separate part of the facility and they just had a you know honest conversation okay Mm -hmm. tell us what this is really going to be like when our husbands are ordained what kind of stress is that going to be on the family um what about kids do i have to sit at church at mass by myself for the rest of my life Am I gonna have to manage these kids by myself is he's, he's going to take so much time away at the parish it's going to cause a strain in our marriage i mean think just at honest open oh,
0: absolutely straight up
1: questions yeah and um that i think really uh helped her and cemented her mind that it was going to be okay okay
0: great so phase four another big phase you you, you touched on it you you had a successful career now you had the diaconate, you were married, you had kids. Something big changes. Can you can you go through this next big leap of faith? And uh and this is actually where Perusia where comes on the scene a little bit as well. This is this is the phase you had just gotten through when when uh when you first crossed paths with, with Shabel Rayish at our end. So can you can you go through this this next yeah, phase so, for so, us?
1: So what so what happened was um because uh after I was ordained, remember at Father Mitch Paqua was mm-hmm. my scripture professor. He was not full time at EWTN yet. So after ordination, um, F- uh, Father Mitch moved on. He went off to EWTN and stuff. And so, um, and I was not giving talks on the faith at all. I was not doing anything on the faith except preaching and doing my diaconal, uh ministry in the parish and in the hospital. And I, I, went, I went to prisons um, um, as well. You know, I was just doing the normal stuff. And then. Um, a classmate of mine from graduate school asked me to give a talk at a parish because I had written a paper in graduate school on male spirituality. And he goes, you know, that's something we don't hear a whole lot about. You should, you know, why'd you come to the parish to give a talk? Okay. So the, the pastor said, fine. I went down there and I gave a talk. I basically read my paper from graduate school because I, I wasn't giving on I wasn't giving on talks on the faith yet. And so the pastor liked what he heard. He invited me to come back and, and give a talk on marriage. I'm like, oh, I wrote a paper on marriage, too. You know, but I probably shouldn't read it this time. I probably should, you know. And so that's where it started. And so at, this, at that second um, talk that I gave, someone from the Catholic radio station was there. And they invited me to be on the radio. And I don't know anything about Catholic media or Catholic radio or anything like that. They said, no, no, come on. It'll it'll be fun. So I went and I met with the people at the station. I ended up doing this little 30 minute pre-tape show called faith in life. Mm -hmm. Like how do you live your faith and incorporate that into your life every day? And so uh, Jerry Usher, who used to be the host of Catholic answers live at that time, he came to the station to help them raise money. He heard my little show. And Jerry invited me to be on Catholic Answers Live. That was the first time I was ever on. Um, and I said, I, I can't be on a show like that. I, I, I'm nobody. I mean, they got all famous people on. He goes, no, 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 talk about the male spirituality. We don't hear enough about that. I said, okay. So I did that. So <laughs> I didn't know how it all worked, right? I didn't know that my Real little radio station was also you know broadcast EWTN, that Catholic Answers was all part of that. So Father Mitch hears me on Jerry's show, on Catholic Answers Live, then he contacted me He said, how come you're on Jerry's show and you're not on my show? (laughs) I said, "Uh, I don't know, Father. And so he invited me to be on Catholic Answers Live. Uh, I mean, sorry, to be on EWTN EWTN Live. Live. So so I'd never been to EWTN before, never met Mother, I mean, nothing. I, I, I thought, great, okay, I'll go, I'll do this. I get to see Father Mitch again. I get to see the network. This is great. I go there, I do the live show and I don't even, I I leave there thinking that was a wonderful experience. Okay, time to get back to my life. But there were so many emails in response to what I was taught. I mean, from all over the world. And I was like, what did I say? Like, what is is this? I did not anticipate that kind of response. Mm -hmm. So about a week after that, I get a, a phone call from Doug Keck who was at that time, executive vice president of programming on EW10? He says, man, we're getting tremendous response to what you did with father Mitch. Do you think you turned that into 13 episodes? I said, I think so. <laughs> so, so I ended up writing a script. I sent it in. They loved it. They said, okay, come down and film. I'm like, come down and fil-. I mean, so it just, it just <laughs> happened. And then the one series led to another series. And then I started getting speaking engagement invitations and, And then I got the first international one in Singapore again, because the wife was in my husband's trying to put together this conference. We're looking for international speakers. The wife has a really good friend in Philippines, Philippines watches EW10. Hey, I just saw this guy in EW10. Maybe, you know, he'd be good for your conference. And so she told her friend, the friend told her husband, the husband contacted me. And that was the first time my very first overseas trip was to Singapore. You know, um, and then I went to South Africa. And then so so now fast forward to 2000. This was all 2005, 2006, 2007, 2011. I was in adoration and God said because I was I was an anti-terrorism expert. So I would do what's called threat assessments. And I was in adoration and God said, I need you to do a different type of threat assessment for souls. And I'm thinking of my, no, it, was, it wasn't it was a voice. It was like a, a, an interior, locu- just interior thought, interior locution. Sure. And I thought, where did that come from? Because I had no intention to leaving my job, no intention of, do, of changing anything because I kind of was in cruise control. right? I was very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when God needs you to, to as you're discerning and, and God's calling you to do something more or greater with your life or different, he has to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> so yes. I got very uncomfortable. And, and I was saying, well, no, Lord. You know, I'm very happy. He goes, well, yes. And I was like, no. He was like, yes. So, and so I kind of ignored it. And then other things started happening. happen. My boss, who was also a parishioner in my parish, who allowed me to go to EWTN and do a conference here and there. And he would flex my time at work. He had a stroke and he had to retire early. And, they, and the university brought in another guy and we didn't get along at all.
0: Not so accommodating.
1: Oh, <laughs> so, so now I thought even more about maybe God is calling me to leave. And maybe this is a, the beginning of a sign that God is, you know, developing an exit, strategy, a, a, exit uh, strategy for me. Sure. And so I kept this saying, but my wife was not on board at all. When I first brought up the idea, she goes, you're not leaving your job. You know how much money you make? We have kids in Catholic school. We have a mortgage. What are you thinking? And I said, Well, hon, I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to leave the job. I just did figure out what God wants me to do. She said, What God wants you to do is keep your job. Right? <laughs> so so it, it took a year of discernment because my heart was saying, Wow, what it would be like to just give it, everything totally over to God and just dedicate the rest of your life honoring God by speaking. And, 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 and my head was saying, You have a mortgage. You have responsibilities. You can't make money talking about Jesus. You know, so, so um, you know, it started a year long, very serious discernment process. And that's when I I, I have friends, again, uh, spiritual direction, but also good friends of mine, guys in my wedding this time, guys who who know me and will tell me the truth and not just what I want to hear. And I asked each one of them independently of the the other about what I think God was calling me to do. And every single one of them said, yes, we really believe that God is calling you to do this. And I was like, so every door I tried to shut, God would open another one. Um, And it wasn't until, uh, you know, um, some other situations happened where God made it very, very clear that he wanted me to leave. And I still couldn't do it because I was scared. And I I sat down with my wife again, this was a year later, sat down with her, we talked for two and a half hours, like literally, we talked about everything. If I left my job, what does that mean? If I stay, what does that mean? What's going to happen with the kids? Like what happens with us financially? I mean, we talked about everything. And at the end of the two and a half hours, my wife said to me, you know what? God is calling you to do this. And after all, God's in charge of finances. We should do it. And that's what, and right then, Mark, when she said we should do it, I, literally, I had that same feeling that when, when I read that paragraph in Lumen and about the deacon, that same feeling of peace, that same feeling of calm, that same feeling of confidence, that's the exact same feeling I had at that moment. Because I knew no matter what happened to us from that point forward, she would love me and she would stand by me. She would support me that we were in this together. And so it was her love that gave me the courage to follow God's will. That's And fantastic. so I wrote a, yeah, I wrote a resignation letter, send it in. And, and June 30, uh, 30 June, 2012, I walked away from my career and started speaking and, and writing full time. And that's when I got the invitation, not from Charbel, yes. but from Renato, Yes. Uh, in 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 uh, Perth to yes. come and do some speaking for um for educators for teachers in the um in the archdiocese of Perth, and when Charbel heard that I was coming to Perth, he contacted me. I didn't know who Charbel was, but he goes, "Well, since you're coming to the west coast, he'd come to the east coast and do this." I said, "Well, I'm thinking to myself. This is what I do now. This is my job. Sure." I'll be there, you know, and that's when I got to know Charbel. And back then, Parousia was in his living room.
0: Yes. There was a, a de-
1: I remember it's like it was yesterday, Mark. There was a desk and a computer. Yep. And then he had all the stock in his living room on shelves. Yes. And that was Perusia
0: Media. That was.
1: And I'm looking around going, okay, you know, this, let's see. But when I got to know Charbel and I, and I heard his vision and I heard his passion And I got to know him as a person. I saw he was a, he's a true man of prayer. I was like, this dude totally gets it. And I said, and I knew right then after that first meeting that Charbel and I were going to be working together. I just knew it. Yeah. And so, you know, and and, and discerning my relationship with him, we put some deals together. So now, you know, cause Bruce is the exclusive manufacturer of all of my products. Right. So back then it was CDs and DVDs. Now we're going to the USBs and, and um, you know, it's just started a beautiful um, professional business relationship, but also a wonderful friendship as well.
0: It's been fantastic. And there was no way his living room was ever going to be big enough.
1: (laughs) That's right. But now look, now look at Prussia. Now I look back at 2012. And I look now 10 years later, I'm like, Oh, come on, man. What? How much the how God has blessed the work of okay. Perusia and bringing guys on like you and and matthew and and um uh and, and so many others that are just uh you know uh on fire for the faith but also helping people to to fall more deeply in love with jesus as they learn about about their faith you know it's just it's just remarkable
0: yeah, there's there's no doubt we feel blessed in the work that we're doing, and and sort of being led to your path, and 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 crossing paths, and and collaborating for so long now that, that the Lord's hand is in this, and I don't think there's any there's any doubt about that. So, and that 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 last aspect of your story there, the the discerning the the career move, it just goes to show again, like we talked about before, the power of a strong support network. This is something that you had said no to, you were fighting it. Um, your support network is what going to all these different people that you trusted individually and then having them set you straight if you're like say no you' got this wrong God's calling you to this and then having that conversation with your ultimate support here in this world in your life and and, and just thrashing it out and saying this is what we need to do it just goes to show the power of, of the support network when when it comes to discerning a path in our lives look this yeah. this has been fantastic Deacon Harold thank well, just you so just much
1: one more piece of one is one add here absolutely you know, the, the, the the hardest part of this is actually making the leap to do it. It's like you understand, okay? Like when you fly, oh, the plane looks safe. You know, it's a you know uh, uh, several hundred uh, tons of metal. You know, and I'm gonna put my body in this machine that's gonna be you know uh, you know ten kilometers in the air, traveling five hundred, you know, seven hundred kilometers per hour, and you know, that's one thing to think about it. And, okay, it's another thing to actually step on the plane. <laughs> right? To trust enough to step on the plane. Absolutely. And it's just like, it's one thing to think about what God wants to do. What you believe God is doing is another thing to actually do it. And I think a lot of people um, never fulfill the vocation God had for them because of fear. Yes. Because of fear. And people keep asking, that's the one thing I get more than anything else when I hear my story how did you make the decision to actually walk away from your job? Because that is scary. Mm-hmm. But I had a plan, right? Because yes. I, I mean, I didn't just say I'm going to leave. And all of a sudden God's going to no. I had an exit strategy. You know, I was working with people already. I had a publicist. Um, I had a, um, my very first event coordinator um, was a, a remarkable woman out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who I'd done some conferences for. And she had done this professionally. So she helped me. And so I had, a, I, I was already building a team. I already had a plan and a way of, okay, how, how are we going to make this work? So was it just willy nilly? Yeah. I mean, it, it, God gives you the abilities and because again, economics and business major thinking I was going to use those skills in a monastery. Now I use them to run my apostolates. Sure. You know, so God gives you what you need. You just have to help work with him and discern. And, and um, again, true love casts out all fear. So we have to learn how to love more than be afraid.
0: Absolutely. Now, you said it was 2012. You, you finally handed in your resignation, right? That, that yep. was, wasn't that the year the church decreed as the year of faith?
1: Year of faith. I took there a leap go. of faith during the year of faith. That's Absolutely.
0: Right, That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Deacon. This has been fantastic. I, I really believe in the power of stories and people sharing their stories. Anytime I interview a priest, I love asking them first of all. Why did you become a priest? What is it that drew you to this? And, and there's such power in hearing other people's experiences that whoever might be listening or watching, listening to or watching this, there might be something that just clicks for them. And oh, somebody else has gone through that too. That that sounds like me. And it can really just help someone along their own journey. So, so thank you for opening up and, and sharing your story about your own vocational journey so far. And I say so far because you're still here with us. You don't know if there aren't going to be more leaps of faith in the <laughs> days right. ahead. So, so the, the journey's not done until we, until we finally reach, it, uh, reach home in heaven. But, but thank you for sharing your journey so far. And, and I hope that, that the listeners have, have taken something away from this that, that's very valuable for them in their own journeys as well.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Great to be here.
0: And and for anyone who does want to hear more from Deacon Harold, uh, I've said in a few of the previous podcasts we have this device. It's a USB device that Deacon just touched on it a minute ago. I think there's 21 or 22 audio presentations, and Deacon presenting on various different topics of of the faith and and, and living the faith and and spirituality and. They're all on one device. It's available now through Deacon Harold's website at deaconharold.com and then click on the store page. You can also get that through the Perusia website at perusiamedia.com and once again clicking on the store page and just type into the search Deacon Harold USB and you'll, you'll find that device there. It's a really valuable resource. I know that, that a lot of people struggle to find uh, a ways to play an old CD, that that format seems to be slowing a little bit. But if you don't have a CD player, you still want to hear this fantastic content. You can, first of all, purchase and download mp3s but if you did want it all on one physical device this usb is a great option it's proving very popular i know for you deacon on the road at your events you you you, they 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 very quickly move off the table so so definitely get your hands on one of those and 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 learn from deacon harold as you can see there's there's so much wisdom he has to share so so definitely look out for that on either website and once again keep up with with deacon harold's work and and what he's doing at his website deaconharold.com and, and everything that we're doing here in, in perusia at parousiamedia.com. Thank you once again for joining us here on Speaking with Deacon today. We look forward to having you here with us next time. So until then, God bless you.